This week on the Back Table Podcast. I offer people beta histidine hydrochloride, sir. Well, it's not FDA approved, but you can call your local compounding pharmacy. They'll mix it up for you. It's the number one drug used in Canada and the UK for Meniere's disease. And it's very effective. And it has almost no side effects unless you have a bleeding ulcer. That's the only contraindication. So I am willing to use alternatives within reason, you know, as long as there's some data to support it. But just because one article is out there saying you shouldn't do it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't. But, you know, we do need to pay attention to these types of things as well. But you also have to be able to think outside of the box. And I think most of us like to say we're willing to think outside of the box a bit because we don't have all the answers is the bottom line. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I can make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT here in Dallas, Texas. And today I get to team up with my co-host, Dr. Walter Coots. Hello, Walter. How are you today? Great, Ashley. I'm fantastic. We're looking forward to this episode. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell our listeners who's on tap? Yes, we're privileged to have Dr. Michael Seidman Dr. Seidman completed his Bachelor of Science in Human Nutrition, and we're going to find out why that's very relevant for his practice. He then completed his medical degree from University of Michigan as well, and then completed his residency at the Henry Ford Health System. And then he went on to complete an otology neurotology fellowship at the Silverstein Ear Institute. He's currently at Advent Health in Celebration, Florida, but he's also a professor at both the University of South Florida and the University of Central Florida. So Dr. Seidman takes a unique approach to his practice by using his extensive knowledge of human nutrition and wellness to bring integrative and complementary treatment options to his patients. So I'm hoping that's what we get to talk about today. And you can let the listeners how we maybe can share some of your knowledge with our patients and and treat our patients uh, more effectively. So Dr. Seidman, welcome to Backtable ENT. Well, thank you to uh, all of you. I appreciate you uh, having me on. It's going to be fun. Would you tell us a little bit about your practice and especially your background on how you became interested in integrative and complementary medicine? Yeah. As you mentioned, my uh, undergraduate degree is from University of Michigan in the, from the School of Public Health and Human Nutrition. And I did that because I realized doctors know very little about nutrition. And most medical schools, if you're lucky, have three, two to three one-hour lectures on human nutrition, yet we're considered the world experts and we're not. I also played some of my professional racquetball, toured the country, ate 8,000 calories a day, and it was mostly pizza, nacho cheese, Doritos, and Coca-Cola, which I think all listeners realize that's probably not very good for you. And so I started designing nutritional supplements in my dorm room. So I had vats of powder. I had, you know, ginkgo biloba and vitamin E and vitamin C and different things that I thought that I wasn't getting from my pizza and nacho cheese Doritos. But that's still not a good way of doing it either. I think you really have to balance your diet and eat properly. And then I started working with professional athletes, which was kind of a fun for me. And, you know, I've consulted with the Mexican Olympic team. I've worked and continue to work with a lot of professional teams in Detroit and Florida and New York and have done a lot of work on nutritional healing as well. 
And then in my system, in Henry Ford Health System, I was able to secure a million-dollar donation from initially the Ford Foundation and built the first center for integrative medicine where we brought in holistic nutrition, acupuncture, hypnotherapy, guided meditation, chiropractic, mind-body therapies, et cetera, to treat patients and built that up to about a thousand patient visits per month and then got a million and a half dollar donation from Horst Reckelbacher, who was one of my patients. He's now deceased, but don't let that be a reflection of my care. He was the founder of Aveda Hair Care Products and had pancreatic cancer and he along with the doctors at the Mayo Clinic and I and a Native American Indian arguably kept him alive for an additional nine years after his diagnosis. And he donated a million and a half dollars to Henry Ford Health System to help us build the first organic hydroponic greenhouse ever affiliated with a health system. And we grew uh, greenery and herbs and it still exists today for our patients and our employees. So very passionate about things that we don't know a lot about in medicine today. Wow, that's so cool. A lot to unpack there. <laughs> Where do we start? Ah, sorry. <laughs> Maybe we can start with how do you use this knowledge to take care of your patients? What does that look like? How do you start with your patient consultations and bring that in? I think that's a great question. And what I think I realize is what we know and what we don't know, right? So if you have a hole in your eardrum, we're pretty good at fixing that, right? Depending upon who you are, an 80 to 95% success rate. If you have an appendicitis, we're pretty good at taking out the appendix and curing, if you will, the problem. If you have chronic back pain, migraines, diabetes, hypertension, we're not curing these things. We're managing these things. And conventional medicine is very good at some of the quick fixes, I'll say. But the more chronic issues that we face are huge and we just do a very poor, poor job managing these things. So. I have a comic strip that says, you know, in many cases, our treatments are Band-Aids masking a symptom and the patient's saying to the nurse, I stopped taking the medicine because I prefer the original disease to the side effects. So I realize that complementary integrated medicine philosophy is the healthcare is based on a belief of the unity and the importance of the body, mind, and spirit. And there's a lot of things that we just can't explain in medicine why some people do better than others with a similar disease, for example. And at uh, Advent Health, where I am now, and we're writing, a, there's a whole book on it, but we're writing another book that I was asked to write for uh, Clinics of North America on complementary integrative medicine. They have a whole basis on uh, creation health, and that's not to be biblical in any way, shape, or form or religious. It's based upon making the proper choices. Making the proper decisions is very important for all of us. And we just don't do that in medicine, right? Think about our patients who smoke three packs of cigarettes per day and have done so for 30 years are not stupid people, right? They're people who have an addiction. People who are alcoholics are not ignorant people. They just have an addiction, right? So it's very easy for us to say, stop smoking, stop drinking, lose 100 pounds to our patients. Very challenging for us to do. So there's much more that we have to think about in more of a holistic care for our patients. And, and we don't really get into that as otolaryngologists, really, do we? But some of us do. Some of our um, colleagues are very interested in treating the whole patient, if you will. Yeah, Michael, I agree with that. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges I've run into in my practice is a certain percent of patients, they'll come in, maybe they have vestibular migraines or triple PD, maybe anxiety, something that's a little, a little more difficult for us. Just, you know, it's just going to be treated with a medication. And you know, I've had a hard time convincing patients to even do things as such as going on a low salt diet for many years or maybe have a migraine diet 
How do you convince patients to change their lifestyle and dietary habits? What's the key in getting them to commit to that? I know personally I have a hard time doing that, but how do you address that with patients? Yeah, that's the billion dollar question, right? I mean, uh, or the $4.2 trillion question, because I wrote to a couple of our past presidents that I could cut healthcare costs in half. And frankly, I believe that we can cut healthcare costs from $4.2 trillion to maybe $2.5 trillion. You aren't going to like it, right? We're not going to like what people tell us to do. I mean, people make choices and within a certain spectrum of that, we have to let people make their choices, right? We have to all make choices. I still like Cheetos and Doritos. I try not to eat them every day, right? And so that is the multi-trillion dollar question. How do you get people to change? And I work with a guy who's a licensed hypnotherapist and acupuncturist, and we put together programs for General Motors, for Ford Motor Company, for the fire departments in the Detroit area. And we did manage to get people to change behaviors, but you have to want to change those behaviors. And then there's something called automatic pattern interruption, API is what he calls it. And what is that trigger that makes the 400 pound person go to have more chocolate or more Cheetos? What is the trigger for the alcoholic to have another, have another drink? And there are ways to break that. And we've put together courses on how to do it, but it is, it's a lot of personal responsibility, which a lot of our patients don't have. They come to us and say, fix me, cure me. And there's little responsibility on the patient. So there is no doubt that we can help people, but it's not an easy way to do it. I was asked years ago by the people from Oprah Winfrey's team, can I help her lose weight? And my answer was, yes, I can, but she has to move in with me. Nothing happened after that. And my wife was like, are you kidding me? You really said that? And I said, I did. I said, I can help anybody lose weight, but you got to adopt our lifestyle. So you can do it. It's difficult, but it's not impossible, Walter, right? Can you talk about your lifestyle? So what does it look like when you move in with Michael Seidman? <laughs> <laughs> well, come on over and find out, guys. So my wife would call me an exercise-aholic, right? And my brother jokingly says, Michael, if you didn't eat like a pig, you wouldn't have to exercise seven days a week. But for me, exercise is my sanity. I either get on a bike, I get an elliptical, I have an exercise that I learned from a trainer. My wife and I learned. I lift weights, I do yoga. I meditate as often as I can, which sometimes is zero times in a week and sometimes it's five times in a week. You know, rest is critical. And I joke, you know, I mean, I probably get five to six hours of sleep a night. There are studies to say you need nine or 10. There are studies to say some people can manage on five or six hours a night. So I think rest is really important. I think activity is important. I think outlook is critical. You know, I don't know how you guys, if anybody's ever read the book, The Secret, it's a very interesting book, but it basically says, you know, outlook and optimism is critical. And what you throw out, you know, I don't mean to sound voodoo-ish or like crazy spiritual, but what you throw out to the universe is kind of what you get back. And I think about my daughter. My daughter basically said, you know, hey, I'm going to play D1 soccer. And I said, well, you're going to Indiana University. How are you going to get a D1 soccer scholarship a week before she got a D1 scholarship to play goalkeeper at Towson University? And then when she was there, she uh, said, you know, somebody told me I should go look at a Fulbright scholarship, you know? And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And she said, I don't know. I'm going to just, I'm going to get it. And you throw good things out to the universe and you put it out there and and sometimes good things can happen. Now, you could argue, okay, I'm going to win the lotto. Well, you know, you can't win the lotto unless you buy a ticket also, but positive outlook is critical. So I make a bag of vegetables every week, typically on Saturday or Sunday. It's got cauliflower, broccoli, carrots. It has kale and spinach in it. And I make myself eat that six days a week. And on Saturday, I can take a day off and I don't have to eat my vegetables. 
So my wife and I do that pretty much six out of seven days. We exercise six to seven days a week. We get never enough rest, but some rest and we have fun together. We, you know, have a positive outlook. So that's kind of what living with me looks like. My wife may think it's more hectic than that, but who knows? Making me exhausted thinking about it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you've ever met- Get on uh, your treadmill, Walter. <laughs> no, I've, I've yeah. gotten better. I've gotten better. Michael, I've known you for years now and, you know, meeting you, you have a tremendous amount of energy. You're, you come across very healthy and you can really see that, that you do have a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, I do think there's some, you know, being a physician, a laryngologist, just a doctor and just in healthcare, I do think it's, we need to do the best we can to set that example. And then, you know, sometimes I'm sure you've done this. I'm sure you do this every day with your patients. You know, they're like, well, I don't know if I can change my diet or exercise. You probably share with them what you do and and the benefits you get from that. I'd imagine that's a, a big part of what you do and kind of setting that example. Yeah, I think that is very important. And, you know, not so much as the 1800s when people really respected their physicians. You know, it's, it's very, the mentality in the South is very different than the uh, concepts in the North. And it's not that patients aren't skeptical down here of the physician, but they tend to be more, the word's not, I don't want to use the word polite, but they tend to be, you know, kinder and gentler with the physicians on some level. And there's always the outliers anywhere you go. In the North, it's like, well, I've gotten my 17th opinion and I don't agree with you, you know, or Dr. Google this. I mean, and our patients do that. But certainly we can tell people what we think is best. And again, we're not always going to be right. I mean, my favorite line, not my favorite line, but we used to say butter was terrible for you, but he's got to switch to margarine. And then we switch to margarine and find out that margarine's worse for you because of the trans fats and butter. So we're all back to butter. And the only thing constant is change. And then we hear coffee is really good for you. And then we hear it's bad for you. And, you know, then we hear a small amount of alcohol is good for you. And then we hear it's bad for you again. And so if you don't like what you hear today, just wait five years, it'll change for sure. So what we know, we know today, what we believe we know today is true today, but it can be very different for sure. Yeah, it can definitely be very overwhelming. I mean, it is for me. And so I'm sure for patients too, who don't have the medical degree to fall back on or to compare to, it can be even more overwhelming. Out of these different health pillars, if you will, so, you know, exercise, diet, stress management, sleep, these different types of things, is there one of them that you feel like is most important? You know, if your patients are just like looking at you like, whoa, you know, if you're when you say you got to do all these things, do you ever say, okay, well, just get eight hours of sleep or, you know, just eat more vegetables? Is there one that is more helpful than the others or do you need to try to do it all? I'm not sure I'm going to be right with this, but I guess my feeling is garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you're eating junk food all the time and you're not taking good care of yourself from that perspective, I think that's really important. And so, you know, in a car, you put hopefully good fuel in there and you get to go from point A to point B, you get some exhaust out the tailpipe, right? And emissions and carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, whatever you get out of the tailpipe. And the same thing is in a human, if you put bad food into your body, you know, that's not a great thing for us, right? We know that. And so I think proper nutrition, and as you well know, I, I'm a supplement guru and I can treat most medical disorders with, uh, and I didn't mean to use that term guru, like I think all the world of myself in that realm, but I can treat most medical disorders with an alternative and have worked with a lot of quote, alternative practitioners. And I still, to this day, take care of seven CEOs around the country. You would know each and every single one of them and their families. And to a tune, these are people running multi-billion dollar companies. I said, Mr. So-and-so, 
why do you want me? I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. I don't know how to use a stethoscope. And to a T, they all said, well, I have high cholesterol or I have hypertension and I don't want to take a prescription medication. And I know you'll give me something else. And I know you'll tell me when it's time to be on a prescription medication. And I know you'll send me to the right doctor to, to manage that. And they also said, I know you can, if I'm in Zimbabwe delivering an XYZ vehicle or an XYZ something, if God forbid I have a heart attack, you can probably make a call or two and, and have me at the best place on short order. And so I said, okay. And I took on that fun task of doing their concierge medicine for them. So to a T, smart people understand that you can't get everything you need from food. One, two, that there are alternatives to things. A direct uh, corollary for us is Meniere's disease. I can't tell you how many patients we say that if you do the Furstenberg diet, which is salt, caffeine, well, you know, primarily salt restricted diet, Furstenberg, basically the library at University of Michigan, he was the chair of laryngology a long time ago at University of Michigan, but he came up with the diet that basically talked about low sodium diet. And we add avoid caffeine, avoid other triggers that may trigger Meniere's and take a diuretic. You know, most people use diazide or some people use diamox. And 80% of those people will be better. Of those who aren't better, you know, then you talk about surgical options or intratympanic steroids or intratympanic genomycin, whatever it might be. But before I even go there, I offer people beta histidine hydrochloride, CERC. Well, it's not FDA approved, but you can call your local compounding pharmacy. They'll mix it up for you. It's the number one drug used in Canada and the UK for Meniere's disease. And it's very effective and it has almost no side effects unless you have a bleeding ulcer. That's the only contraindication. So I am willing to use alternatives within reason, you know, as long as there's some data to support it. But just because one article is out there saying you shouldn't do it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't. But, you know, we do need to pay attention to these types of things as well. But you also have to be able to think outside of the box. And I think most of us like to say we're willing to think outside of the box a bit because we don't have all the answers is the bottom line. I'll tell you, I'm going to ask you a little bit about, because I, you know, I have an otologist, I have a very busy Meniere's practice, and I have a very similar approach. I started using, I trained at the house clinic, and we didn't use really much beta histine, but when I started UT Southwestern, I started using beta histine fairly quickly. And I've had the same results. Many patients swear by it. It's been very, really controlled symptoms and very, very little side effects. What sort of dose do you start with? How high will you go on the beta histine? Tell us kind of how you manage Meniere's patients with beta histine. I used to not go above 48 milligrams. So in Canada, the drug comes as four milligrams and the starting dose is four milligrams three times a day. Our compounding pharmacist pretty much charges the same for four milligrams versus eight. So I make eight milligram capsules and I tell people to take eight milligrams three times a day and I start them at 24 milligrams. And I tell them that it's a potent vasodilator. So they might have a headache the first day or two, but most people don't. And I say, I asked, do you have a bleeding gastric ulcer? And they say, no. And even if they have heartburn, that's not a contraindication, but a bleeding ulcer is. And I say, you, I used to say titrate up to 48 milligrams. Then I got a little bit more courageous up to 96 milligrams. And now my maximum dose is 108. But I will tell you in Canada, they go even higher than that. I mean, this has been, you know, Lauren Parnes out of Canada. And there have been some things on our private otology online group that say, oh, we, we use, you know, the, the mid to high hundreds without any difficulty at all. So I'll typically start at 24 milligrams just because it's easy with the eight milligram cancel capsules that my uh, compounder makes. And I'll tell patients they should do that for 24 milligrams, eight milligrams, three times a day for, for a month and see how they do. If they're not better, I tell them to start increasing by eight milligrams at each interval over about a week period of time. So eight, eight and 16. 
do that for a week. No better, 8, 16, 16. No better, 16, 16, 16. Slowly titrate over weeks. And and I just find, I'm going to jump out and say that easily 80% of the people that I put on Cirque, I've canceled their surgery that I had them scheduled for a sac decompression or a labyrinthectomy or something. And they just you know think I'm the next best thing to slice bread. I have about 10 wonderful ties and my wonderful ties are from grateful patients. And one of them is a tie that talks about elixirs and potions. And, and certainly I've been chastised by that by some of my uh, not so open-minded colleagues who think I'm you know selling snake oil and clearly I am not. But certainly you put yourself at risk by doing things that are, quote, not FDA approved and, quote, not necessarily approved by your countrymen or countrywomen, if you will. And do you guys still start with traditional low-salt diet and diuretics and then do try beta-histine if those don't work? Or are you ever just going straight to beta-histine? Walter, you want to answer? Well, you know, I, I think some patients are going to have a more difficult time with diazide uh, from a side effect profile, especially if somebody's pretty thin and they maybe their blood pressure runs a little bit low or some people just don't tolerate a diuretic. So I will sometimes start beta-histine first or sometimes if they're having, they're very symptomatic, you can start both at the same time. It's a very different mechanism of action. So Michael, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know if that's always your second line or if, if you do the same. I'd be curious. Yeah, I, I think that's a great approach, um, Walter, but I, I tend to be kind of by the book. So I say, hey, watch your salt, caffeine, alcohol, simple sugars, and here's diazide. But you're right. If they're on already a blood pressure medication or they're thin, you know, a lot of people don't love it. And also diazide, you know, it's hydrochlorothiazide, triamphorine hydrochlorothiazide. So if you have a sulfa allergy, that's it's a sulfa-based derivative. They can have an allergic reaction to that. And then the the real counterintuitive thing is that we tell people we're trying to reduce the overall fluid volume inside your inner ear, so we're giving you a diuretic. But yet we tell people to drink a lot of fluids and try to maintain their hydration. So that seems like an oxymoron. But I tell people to still stay well hydrated, but just watch their salt, put them on a diazide. And I'm going to tell you, 75, 80% of those patients get better. So of those who don't get better, I go on to the next step. And we haven't jumped onto the subject of tinnitus, which is not anything I ever really want to be known for, but obviously I've published a lot on this. And, and you'll have patients who say, I don't care what you give me, give me 27 things, I'll take them all, this is driving me crazy. And then if you make them better after they're, they've been on 27 things, how do you know which one made them better and what can you stop? So that would be my only argument against what Walter was saying about, yep, salt, caffeine, alcohol avoidance, and you know, a water pill, and maybe Cirque if they're pretty bad. And and then if they're better, how do you know what made them better? That's a good point. You know, we had a Hamid Dejillian on a podcast, really a very interesting episode. I don't know, three or four episodes ago, but Hamid has published a significant amount of uh, literature on migraines being the cause of Meniere's and even ear fullness, many other conditions, and really treats many of his patients with migraine therapies. And, and really, it's not only medical he really tries to get them to follow like a migraine elimination diet, maybe supplements. How do you feel about migraine causing Meniere's? Obviously, vestibular migraines, I think we all agree on is a, a real entity or somebody just come to the ear fullness, ear pain and these sort of vague symptoms. Do you think migraine, Michael, when you treat these patients? Yeah, I think Khamid is a, is a genius and I, I love reading his uh, missives and I think they're onto something. I work very closely with Jim Atkins, who does a lot of our medical otology here at Advent Health. And so I'm, I'm blessed that I have a very fun surgical practice and he sees a lot of the medical otology and he treats a lot of migraine patients. And our fellows, you know, we have one of the, I think there are eight one-year fellowships around the country now. We have one of those 
And the fellows get to learn from Dr. Atkins, Jim Atkins, who treats a lot of this. And so I think that there is absolutely some sort of crossover, if you will, and what we're calling Meniere's may indeed be a variant of migraine. But again, it's a pocket of people that are really pushing this and very interestingly putting patients on anti-migranous medications or anti-migranous diets and lifestyle changes, and they get better. So I think for sure he's onto something. And for your Meniere's patients or just your patients in general, are you also, in addition to talking about the standard medical therapies, Are you also bringing in, oh, also you need to make sure and eat your vegetables, get your rest? Does that come in too? I think it's important as a physician to counsel our patients on that. I think a lot of us feel that we're practically speaking too busy. If you're seeing 25, 35, and some of my colleagues are seeing 50 patients in a day, you don't really, in a practical sense, have time to do that. But then it makes me feel like we're being or essentially a a little bit of a disservice to our patients if we don't talk about that. So I want to say I go out of my way to have that conversation, but I have to admittedly say it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Or do you ever use like handouts or give them information or resources to kind of read about it or learn about it more after they leave your office? Yeah. So I have about 375 smart phrases for Epic and the similar number that are replicative in Athena and Cerner because I've used all of those. And I do have handouts that talk about this type of behavior. I was uh, asked by Warner Wellness, Warner Books, to write a book about saving your hearing. And we've done a lot of research and a couple of patents have come up and some of the work that I've done with the military indirectly that we can reduce noise and age-related hearing loss by a small but statistically significant degree in animal models. And so, you know, I have a book called Save Your Hearing Now, and it was never on the number one bestsellers list in case anybody was ever wondering. And it it is still available. I have about 2,000 copies in my house. And we talked about natural alternatives to saving your hearing. So I have like a three-page handout for that. And when it first came out, I was in 60 papers around the world from the London Times, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And it said uh, leading antioxidant scientist, Dr. Michael Seidman, has shown he can reverse age and noise-related hearing loss. And, and so I got calls and emails from around the world. And my answer was, I know for a fact, if you are a rat, I can slow the process and even reverse it. But to do that and test it in an animal model would cost billions of dollars. And I just don't have that kind of money, nor do we have uh, anybody in that that has that interest. And I still hold the patents on it, but they're old enough that anybody can do these sorts of things. And these types of nutrients are available in health food stores, you know, that people can take. But again, I can't in good conscience tell you that I know for a fact it'll work in humans. And some of our uh, NIH funded work with extracts of red wine, resveratrol in particular, we've shown that we can mitigate noise induced hearing loss as well with extracts from red wine. Very interesting. So you, you mentioned tinnitus. If I see a patient with bilateral tinnitus, of course, I'm going to audiogram. Oftentimes, they're going to have some hearing loss, usually high frequency hearing loss. And I do try to spend time explaining kind of what we, the best we understand the pathophysiology and is a central phenomenon, is a phantom sensation. And I think the majority of patients, that's very helpful. And as a matter of fact, I think they sort of get it and, you know, they have mild to moderate tinnitus and they can move on. But we will see patients with more severe tinnitus or they just don't quite understand that we don't have a medicine for tinnitus. I used to promote, well, not promote, but I used to, you know, say, hey, you can try this, this, or this, you know, kind of tinnitus compound you can get 
wherever you can order online. And then I, I sort of quit doing that after the academy came out with the tinnitus guidelines. I'm curious, how do you speak with the patient that comes to you with, let's say, moderate to severe tinnitus that's looking for some sort of help? Sure. Yeah, th- this is probably the one that's gotten me in the most trouble uh, with one colleague in particular of, of ours. So I, uh, you know, I've designed nutritional supplements for years. I have seven or eight patents on different things that I've developed. And Arch's tinnitus relief formula came around, which basically has ginkgo, garlic, and zinc in it. And I used to get a royalty and I disclosed it to patients. And if people knew that I got about $250 a quarter or about $1,000 a year, and then I gave it to charity that I think they thought I was making millions and millions of dollars by recommending it. And so I finally took my name off and separated from them, though I think it's a terrific product. And what I found is, you know, not all ginkgo is created equal, right? I mean, so I used to tell people to go to to the health food store and buy ginkgo and somebody would go to CVS and spend a dollar for their bottle and they would get a stomach ache and it wouldn't work. And somebody else would go to the fancy health food store, spend a hundred dollars for their bottle and they would get a headache and it would work for them. And so echinacea is a uh, commonly used herb for the common cold. But what most people don't realize is that there are at least nine different subtypes of echinacea and some work to actually fire up the immune system, some don't. And most of the echinacea in a health food store is the echinacea type that doesn't work to enhance T and B cell function. So why are people doing that? Because either they're, the company's putting it out there either cheap because it's probably cheaper or they, they don't care. But back to the tinnitus that you asked me about, I do think, and I still recommend that people consider Ginkgo, although I have nothing to do with the company. And I don't think you can go to Costco Sam's Club and buy the cheapest Ginkgo you can. So I am a big advocate of Arches because I think that they've really dotted their I's, crossed their T's. And I would tell patients that You know, if I told 100 people to get Arch's tinnitus relief formula, I would say five said to me they were cured and had tried everything else. So that's five more people that you wouldn't otherwise be helping. I would probably say 30% said it did absolutely nothing for them. And about, I don't know, somewhere 60%, roughly speaking, would say, ah, you know, I'm not so sure it's helped. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And I say, okay, well, then you should stop sending them your money. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. So they obviously think it's helping them somewhat. So I do think we don't know a lot of things, right? And I'm in the process of writing a book with Abe Schulman and Michael Hoffer, and I'm one of the authors on tennis. We've been working on it for about five years. I think it's about 80 different chapters. And, you know, I do think you have to think about different types of nutritional supplements like magnesium and zinc, kind of the same things that help with migraine theoretically, right? Zinc is in the highest concentration in the inner ear. And people always say, well, okay, well, why don't you take a zinc level or why don't you take a B12 level and see if you're low? And the answer is we've changed the guidelines on these. And so I'm I'm not convinced that saying, oh, gee, your B12 is in the right level, therefore it's okay. Well, it's in the right level for two standard deviations above the population. And you might be somebody who needs more or you might be somebody who needs a little bit less. And there's no doubt there are toxicities to taking too much zinc or taking too much magnesium, but typically what you'll get at a health food store, a good health food store. So I don't encourage people to jump out to their CVS or Rite Aid to buy their supplements. I think you need to go to either a mom and pop or, you know, I dare I say a GNC or someplace where I think that there are typically knowledgeable people behind the desk who understand the use of the herbs and supplements. And I happen to love the mom and pop places that are still in existence somewhere out there to drive supplement uh, directions and what you should take. Can I tell people I'm going to cure them by taking these supplements? Absolutely not. I tell people to take them for three or four months. And if it's not helping, stop sending the company your money. 
So that's kind of my approach with this. I'm glad you mentioned quality because that was one of the questions I, I have for you and questions that I think about when I'm looking at supplements because the price range can vary significantly. Is there anything on the bottle? Are there any like certifications or anything to look for to know that what you're buying is what you think you're buying? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I was, you know, I worked with BASF and WebMD and a lot of these companies. And so, you know, you've heard BASF say, we don't make the paint, we make the paint stronger. Well, you know, we don't make the plastic, we make it better or whatever they say. So they had a SAM-E product, you know, S-adenosylmethionine. And you just struck on a pet peeve chord with me there, actually, uh, because, you know, companies say, oh, well, you, you're calling for 100 milligrams of vitamin C and there was actually 110 in there or there was 90 in there. Well, so the FDA allows you plus or minus 10% to follow within the guidelines. So to answer your question directly, you know, the things that say like USP or NSF are bought certifications. So, you know, we have a company, a nutritional supplement company, obviously a conflict of interest for me talking about it here. And we have what we think are the world's best formulations and the best supplements, and they aren't cheap. You know, we have a men's system and a women's system, and we're made in an FDA CGMP, certified GMP lab that, that is NSF certified. But if I want to put NSF certification on my actual bottles, I have to go pay the NSF people hundreds of thousands of dollars is my understanding. So I haven't put that on my bottle, even though I'm made in a plant in the United States that has all these certifications. So just because it's not on there doesn't mean that they're not good. But I, you know, th there was just a study out there that just came out, which was another meta-analysis study, which makes me raise an eye. I can't raise one eyebrow, but if I could, I would. So I do it with my fingers here that said, you know, and as we learned in medical school, they say expensive vitamins give you expensive pee. Well, that's not untrue, but your body absorbs what it needs and excretes what it doesn't. So, so for example, vitamins A, D, E, and K, a DEK, A, D, E, K, are fat-soluble vitamins. So if you take too much, that can theoretically be a problem. But the B vitamins, for example, if you take too much, you're going to excrete them for the most part. And I will tell you, I know exactly what's in my bottles and we have certificates of analysis to prove what's in there. They get tested. And 99% of the companies out there, in my opinion, are not trying to cheat the consumer. There's always the 1% that is. But I will get personal here and tell you that I really get excited when I see after I've taken my vitamins that my pee is not bright yellow. And then the next day I see that it's bright yellow and I know that there are standardizations there. And, and what I, what I am assuming, I don't have definitive proof is that the day that it's bright yellow, I have excreted my B vitamins that my body didn't need them. The day before when it was less bright yellow, I was probably under more stress and my body absorbed more of those vitamins. Your body knows what to do with the nutrients that are on board. So I don't, necessarily believe the statements of expensive vitamins, expensive pee. But I, again, would caution people to, you know, go with a Solgar, go with a nature made, go with a well-known, respected brand. I mean, you know, our company is called Peak 365 Nutrition, but we don't have everything under the sun, except that I have everything that you need in a men and a women's system, for example. But it's not cheap. You know, it's expensive stuff. It's $135 for men and $145 for, for women for a month supply. And it's, an AMPM pack, and it's everything you need. And that goes into, you know, well, most people say, well, there was a whole newsletter from the Hopkins report, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. It said smart people take extra vitamin A, C, and E. And then smart, really smart people take that with magnesium 
and zinc because you have manganese and magnesium and zinc SOD, for example, and catalase and glutathione enzymes that require those minerals. And most people who are really smart take chelated minerals because you absorb them better. That means that calcium carbonate, which is Tums. So a lot of doctors said take Tums for your bones. Well, you absorb about two to 4% of that. If you chelate it, which means you tag it to an amino acid. So calcium citrate, calcium glycinate, magnesium citrate, for example, is much better for you, in my opinion, and the studies show you absorb them better. So I do think you get what you pay for is a long story short. And I do think if you can see made in an FDA CGMP inspected laboratory, you're probably okay. Interesting. Yeah, Matt. Need to catch up on my nutrition supplement knowledge. But, but like you say, Michael, we don't learn this in medical school. It is very limited, right? If anything, it's some sort of biochemical reaction that we memorize to get through a test. And then I think once we get into practice is where we, speaking with people like you, we can learn more about the practical treatments and things that can help our patients. Let me see how you would treat a patient that we probably would commonly see. Patient comes in, you know, they, they're dizzy all the time. They, you know, have tried, you know, you're the third opinion they've had, you know, it's kind of constant dizziness, maybe visual stimuli, you sort of talking to them and you just feel that, you know, they're just not motivated to do much or, or I'll tell you, we'll, we'll talk about the patient that seems motivated. They, they don't feel well, but you can tell maybe they're overweight. You can tell they're probably not very nutritious. You talk to them about sleep and they say, well, I don't know if I really get that. My sleep's not that great. How do you, from the beginning to the end, how do you counsel a patient? What sort of testing you do? What dietary supplementation do you recommend? You know, how do you convince them to kind of get into a plan because that, that really is not a one individual problem. That's a whole lifestyle issue, right? Making them feel so poor. That's kind of amplifying whatever underlying pathology is going on. I think it's not an easy situation, right? But that's 60% of America, right? 60% of Americans are overweight. They're not getting enough rest. They're getting no exercise. And that's where, where you talk about making mandatory changes and reducing healthcare costs. It's pretty easy to do, but nobody's going to like the medicine. If the president of the United States says anybody who's six feet tall has to be 170 pounds or less, and we don't care if you're thin bone, medium bone, or heavy bone, and anybody who's five feet tall must be 100 pounds or less. We started to do that at Henry Ford Health System. I, I don't mean that draconian, but if you smoked, you paid more for your health insurance. If you were overweight and you were not on a weight loss management plan, you paid more for your health care insurance, right? So that's kind of the, the impetus and the push there is you've got to put some of the onus on the patient. This is the patient that's coming to you that's just basically saying, yeah, you know, I just don't feel well. I'm dizzy. I'm this, I'm that. And you're looking at them and thinking, oh my God, you're a hundred pounds overweight and you're smoking and you're drinking. You need to quit these behaviors. So you got to have that conversation. It's our job. I had my, I call her my crazy aunt from California. She's now deceased. And she smoked three packs of cigarettes a day for her whole life. And I said, Shirley, I said, why didn't you quit smoking? She says, my doctor never told me I had to. And I have a doctor friend that I love. His name is Dr. Renicky. He just retired from Henry Ford Hospital. And he would have a conversation with his patients. And they would, I don't know that they would all hate him for it, but they just said, well, don't patronize me and I'll do what I want. And he would have patients mad at him for counseling him ad nauseum about this. So, you know, th there's got to be a fine line between saying, you need to quit smoking. You got to lose weight. You know, if you're dizzy all the time and they have no nystagmus, the exam's normal, I think we're obligated to do some testing, you know, right? That's my biggest fear when I teach a course at University of Central Florida on the management of patients with dizziness. 
And the typical patient is, you know, the 70 or an 80 year old who's on 30 different medications, who's had three strokes, cabbage twice, is an insulin dependent diabetic, you know, has peripheral neuropathy and is dizzy all the time. And your primary care doctor sends them to you and says, hey, Michael, hey, Walter, hey, Ashley, work this guy up. And you're like, dude, this patient's dizzy for these hundred reasons. But on some level, we feel obligated to then say, okay, I'll do a VNG, I'll do a rotary chair, I'll do, you know, some additional testing to make sure it's not the inner ear. Well, let's just say the person has a 30% right reduced vestibular response in a normal rotational chair. So they've, quote, compensated. What are you going to do? You're going to give them exercises. Well, you've just, you know, you've just run these $1,000 worth of tests that you probably get reimbursed $6 for anyways. And actually, we don't have rotary chair, or at least not many of them in Florida, because you don't get reimbursed for it, apparently. So I don't even have rotary chair testing anymore at Advent Health. But I think there's some obligation on our part to make sure that there's not a, quote, treatable cause for their particular problem that we know of. And then this goes back to, you know, if you're dizzy all the time, is this a migranous variant or is this, you know, your overall poor health contributing to this? And the easiest fix is to change your lifestyle, but that's the most, it's the easiest, it's the least toxic, but it's the most intrusive, right? So it's very challenging. Yeah, it's hard to do, but I think you're right. I think we, at least just bringing it up, you know, and it doesn't even have to be like a, a super long conversation, but just saying, you know, these things are also playing a role. And let me know if you would like my help in addressing that or something like that can be just a little something just to kind of plant the seed. And maybe maybe they go from there. You had mentioned things like acupuncture and, you know, the hypnosis and other non-supplement uh, alternative type things. Can you talk about what scenarios those types of modalities are, are helpful? Yeah, I think in most everything, they're helpful for patients. You know, if, if somebody's biting their fingernails, if somebody's smoking, if somebody is drinking too much, and it's an interesting thing. So we did a study with smoking cessation at Henry Ford Health System. And the long story short was we got a 100% success rate at getting people to quit smoking with both acupuncture and hypnosis combined. And we did this on 10 patients. 100% success rate, but you have to want to quit. So I'm a diet Pepsi-aholic. I love diet Pepsi. I could drink two liters, two two liter bottles every day, even before I'd go to sleep and sleep and have no problem. Well, you know, the, the NutraSweet or whatever, the whatever's inside of them is probably not very good for you. And I finally quit like four years ago. I just cold turkey quit. I thought about going through uh guided meditation, hypnosis type things that probably would have been easier for me, but I quit. I don't really miss it every once in a while if I'm sitting having a slice of pizza or at a movie watching, you know, eating popcorn, I kind of say, wow, I'd really like to get some uh, Diet Pepsi, but I don't anymore, so I don't miss it. And I wish I could do the same with sugar. I, I've got a sweet tooth, and so I wish I didn't like sweet. So I've actually thought about doing hypnosis for that, but pretty much anything you want to change, any behavior that you don't like about yourself, Guided meditation, hypnosis, you know, things of that nature are really helpful. Back to the tinnitus, you know, I, I do tell people to try acupuncture. And most good acupuncturists will say if they can't help you within six treatments, we're probably not going to help you. So I totally disagree and wrote a 25-page diatribe against the guidelines that came out on tinnitus because basically they said the only thing that works is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think it's just nonsense. I think it's a disservice. And so, you know, it goes back to if you say to a patient, hey, there's a stuff called ginkgo, it's probably a waste. 
I think you're an idiot to do it. It's probably expensive and I'm pretty sure it won't help. That's one way to phrase it. Or you can say, hey, you know, there are 18 studies, 11 of which that clearly show ginkgo is beneficial for tinnitus and seven say not so much. And one of the studies was the one that everybody quotes. They used the dose that was one quarter of the dose recommended by the German Commission E. So this is like if you're a diabetic and you have a blood sugar of 500 and somebody gives you three units of insulin, it's not going to bring you down enough, right? You need a much higher dose. So when people quote a study study that used the wrong dose that everybody still quotes to today, it blows my mind. And I, I know I'm getting off kilter here, but the point is, is I think you can use things like holistic nutrition, like acupuncture, I'll say mind-body therapies, which includes hypnosis and guided meditation to change your behaviors. Because if we could only change our behaviors to make us make the right choices for our bodies and for our health, we would eliminate so many diseases. I mean, chronic diseases affect 75% of people on this planet. And many of those are lifestyle-induced. I read your uh, your rebuttal. I thought it was very interesting and you had some good points. That's why I asked you about it. It's got you fired up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I like the idea of sometimes loading the boat with these problems. You know, like again, somebody sees me at tinnitus and maybe I'll maybe start bringing up some more supplements after we talked about, you know, this conversation. But I think it's also, you know, I, we do dismiss things such as acupuncture, hypnosis. It's not studied the same as Western medicine. And, and you bring up points, especially with a lot of the conditions that are probably multifactorial and there's such a complex play with each individual that it's really hard to have a, you know, what we would want to see a randomized controlled trial that really answer the questions. But if someone said, hey, I, you know, I'd be willing to try acupuncture. I don't really know any acupuncturists or I don't know anybody that does hypnosis. Do you have sort of, you built some relationships in Florida that, you know, that you send these patients to? I have. So, you know, at Henry Ford Health System, we had a center for integrative medicine and we had three licensed acupuncturists on board. We had mind-body therapists on board. And so our Advent Health and our um, wellness area, which is they have a beautiful gym and a beautiful counseling area, we have a couple of acupuncturists there. So I'll send people there if they want to try it, for example. From the hypnosis standpoint, you know, the, the guy that I go to is a guy that I've published some papers with and we've worked on and is writing a chapter for us now in the uh, clinics of North America that's coming out soon. You know, he wrote an entire chapter on how to change behaviors through this automatic pattern recognition interruption plan that he has, which is what we rolled out to General Motors and different places. And we change behaviors dramatically, but it also rolls back onto the concept of the patient has to want to change. So if you say to your husband or your wife or your significant other, you smell like an ashtray, I can't kiss you because you smell like smoke, yet they love to smoke, they're going to have a hard time quitting because they just don't necessarily really want to quit. On some level, they want to, but it's just really hard. But you can make important behavioral changes. If you want to see your grandkids and perhaps your great grandkids, I just gave a talk on, I keep getting nervous every time I say this about how to live 150 healthy years. I firmly believe it's possible. You know, some people say, why would you want to? But, you know, I think it's possible that we, we are genetically able to live to be 125, 150 healthy years. None of us want to be 70, 80 or 100 and have Alzheimer's cognitive decline and inability to move. And so it's just so important to grow old gracefully. And I think there are ways to do that. Yeah. I want to ask you also about posture and integrative neurosomatic therapy. 
I read that in a, the 2013 Otolaryngology Clinic's book about CIM. What is that for like tinnitus? That was, you know, it's funny when Sujana Sandra Shaker asked me to write a book about complementary integrative medicine, I said, I just did that. She goes, no, that was 2013. So I think that's the book you're referring to. And so Kiris Conrad is a licensed St. John's neuromuscular therapist. And I think she co-authored that chapter. And what we found, which is fascinating, and this is, uh, I believe this was finally published out of our center, was almost everybody has a leg length discrepancy. And three millimeters of a leg length discrepancy or less is within normal limits. I had a 14 millimeter leg length discrepancy. I never, never get really headaches of any significance, but I had a kind of a little limp in my walk and they figured this out. But if you put one shoe on, if you can imagine doing this right now, put one, put your right shoe on, take off your left shoe and you see how that leg length discrepancy happens. It rotates your, if, if the left shoe, left side doesn't have a shoe, it rotates your left hip forward, your right hip rotates back, your upper body rotates to the left, your neck rotates to the right. We found, I think it was on a hundred patients that had horrible migraines that had been to the Saper Clinic, which is a famous clinic in Michigan at University of Michigan, an offshoot of that, and had been on every Imitrex drug known to mankind and all these different drugs. And they were just in and out of migraine all the time. Turns out that they had a leg length discrepancy that was greater than three millimeters. And the typical orthopedic or podiatric remedy is to put something inside your shoe. The problem with that is that if you've got a nine millimeter leg length discrepancy, well, you put nine millimeters at the heel, you can't go all the way across the bottom because your foot won't fit into that shoe. So the way to fix it is to put it on the bottom of your shoe, but then you look silly if somebody notices your shoes and sees that. And I used to do that until my my hip got worse to the point that I probably have no hip joint. And I now no longer have much of a leg length discrepancy anymore, but that's a whole nother issue. But we found when we did that and we corrected their leg length discrepancy through these, these techniques of St. John's neuromuscular therapy and the observational aspects of that, that 50% of the people, you know, th these hundred people couldn't get out of migraines. We helped more than half of them and it was statistically significant and all of this from a leg length discrepancy. So structural neuromuscular things that we're not taught about in medical school are very real and very powerful to cause a lot of potential problems. And people kind of scoff at chiropractors. Well, you can find some very good chiropractors out there who know what they're doing. And I would advise people to do that. But the ones that scare me are the ones who say, well, you walk upright and therefore you, you get your spine out of alignment. So you need to be adjusted three times a week for the rest of your life. I run away from those people. But chiropractors work on the concept of realigning the spine. Neuromuscular therapist, St. John's Neuromuscular Therapy says, what causes that spine to go out of alignment and this can cause vertigo and this can cause tinnitus and this can cause a lot of different problems, migraines too. They say, well, it's the tendons and the ligaments attached to those bones. So it's not a pleasant massage by any means. I've had it done. It's a very deep manipulation, if you will, of the tendons, the ligaments, and then they relax them so the spine can go back into proper alignment. So that's the whole story in a nutshell of St. John's neuromuscular therapy and chiropractic as well, helping some of our patients. It's interesting. Yeah, Mike, you really, uh, I could, I could tell you don't see a patient and, and just feel like, Hey, I just can't help you and forget about, you know, just forget about that. You really, <laughs> I, you, I mean, you know, I, I think that you really want to get people better, maybe not only individually, but you've really dedicated a lot of your career and your, your energy into making some big changes. And I, I really appreciate you doing that and, and enjoy reading your publications and, and really hearing your ideas. I think they're refreshing and they make a lot of sense. You know, albeit somewhat, because we're not taught this, you have, we have to sort of 
get away from our beliefs that are really entrenched and say, you know what, there's probably other ways to deal with these problems. They're going to be, they're going to be very effective. And I really appreciate that. And we're probably getting close to where we need to wrap up and maybe we could do a part two at some point. I've got a lot of other questions to ask you. Maybe we could do a case by case basis, how you'd approach things. Michael, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Any pearls or take-home points? Yeah, thank you, Ash. I, I think we really underutilize the power of the mind and the spirit and the help of healing people and the power of prayer. And, you know, I, I've got an hour lecture on the power of prayer, and it matters not what you believe, but it matters that you believe. And so I don't care what religion you are, I will pray with you before surgery if you want me to. But there's so many things that we just don't capture in medicine. We're so, okay, here's a drug for that. Here's a surgery for that. And we've got to really think about the spiritual aspects of people, the, the mindfulness aspects of people. And so if you get bored, if you YouTube my name, Dr. Michael Seidman, I've got about 50 videos up there. And there's one about a guy who had uh, acupuncture and hypnosis for his ACL repair as the only sole source of anesthesia. It made national news. Most people didn't see it, but it was actually me. So I had an ACL repair under acupuncture and hypnosis because I didn't want to be put to sleep and I didn't want a spinal. Call me crazy. Some, many people do, but it's kind of a, there's a four minute video clip up there. That's really kind of fun to watch to see the power of this sort of thing. And what we don't know, we don't know. And what we don't know, we oftentimes criticize, but you know, again, the, the, what's the saying? Don't throw stones in glass houses or whatever that phrase may be. But, you know, we have so many of our colleagues out there who just, you know, make fun of other people or talk badly about them because they're doing something different. And that's really unfair because, you know, you know what you know, I know what I know, and sometimes they don't necessarily interact. So I'm going to just leave it with keep an open mind. And there's a lot of things that we don't understand. And Voltaire in the 1600s said that the purpose of a physician is to amuse the patient while the body heals itself. So the, the body has a very innate ability to heal itself, and we don't capitalize on that enough. And so that's what I guess I would conclude with. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Is there, other than checking you out on YouTube, any other avenues where, you know, if, if listeners want to learn more about you? My nutritional site is either Body Language Vitamin Company or Peak 365 Nutrition, but those are places where I sell supplements. So, you know, again, that's a conflict of interest I'm disclosing. My YouTube channel, I kind of have a bunch of videos for different things. There's three or four on tinnitus up there. There's one that I made 30 years ago about tinnitus that talks about what do we think causes this? How do we manage it? And I tell patients three things have changed uh, on that 30-year-old video on tinnitus. One is that I recommend a specific type of ginkgo, which is the Arches Tinnitus Relief Formula. I used to say, go out to a health food store. And I told you why I don't do that anymore. Two is I've developed a brain surgery where I actually map ringing to people's brains using magnetoencephalographic studies, MEG, drill a hole in your head, stick an electrode in your brain. First patient I ever did in the world, I cured him, turned on the device, his ringing went away, turned off, ringing came back. And I did a total of uh, six more. I co-developed this with a neurosurgeon from Belgium and we did a total of seven. So I cured one, did nothing for two and helped the other five. And I say on a scale of one to 10, with one, your ringing's not so bad. 10, you'd have Michael Seidman's brain surgery that didn't work very well. Where are you? So that, that's the second thing that's changed is that I have a brain surgery that doesn't work very well for tinnitus. And the third thing I tell them is that I had more hair. So those are the three changes in that 30-year-old video. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do to help our patients with tinnitus and other things if you just keep an open mind. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll go go check out Dr. Seidman's uh, YouTube page and follow us on Instagram at underscore Backtable ENT. We're also on Twitter, same handle. Like us, rate, subscribe, share. 
Thanks. It's been fun. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.